anyway, all right, well, let's get into our, our lesson for today. We're in uh, Genesis uh, 24, kind of finishing up this, uh, this chapter. So what's happened so far is that Abraham sent his senior servant with an oath to go and find a wife for their only child, Isaac. And we remember the seriousness of that oath, so that's a pretty big deal. And so the idea, or the whole deal was, was that that uh, the servant was to go to Abraham's kinsman, all right? And that wasn't just, oh, find somebody in the family kind of idea. And we talked about that quite a bit last week, that from Abraham's perspective, and it was good thinking, was that because the 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 covenant promise that God had made to Abraham and that through Isaac, that covenant would be maintained all the way until uh, the birth of Jesus and then beyond. It was really important that there not be any spiritual or religious deviation from, uh, from the belief that would be in that family. And so a concern that Abraham had, and it was a very legitimate concern in those days, was that if he married outside of the faith, then there would have been this great temptation and high probability that a wife that came from outside the faith would then uh, influence or have some form of influence in Isaac's life that would draw him closer to uh, false gods, to idols. And that was very common in those days was that very often the the little home idols, the little uh, figurines and little sort of shrines that would be created within one's household, well, you know, if you married into somebody's family, well, you just brought all that with you. And there would have been some divided uh, allegiance spiritually and religiously uh, that could have, again, deviated from worshiping the one true God. And that was the difference between uh, uh, a monotheism in terms of what God insisted on, that you shall have no other gods before me. He meant that. And, uh, and so that, was, that, was the, that would have been the temptation. So the servant goes off to uh, the area where the tribesmen and, and the family, extended family was, and that's where we're picking it up today, is that the servant who was a very godly man himself, he has prayed a prayer. Now, what was the prayer that he prayed? Because he's going into a territory basically where, yeah, we're all sort of extended family related, but he's been charged with this significant responsibility of finding a wife for, uh, for Isaac. He didn't know anybody. He didn't know anything. Okay? So what is his prayer? Remember the prayer, Lawrence? That he would be that he would be successful, right? But success was uh, the, the success was described as finding a wife, but that that wife it was it, in, in some sense he was looking for a sign from God that I need I need a little bit more uh, specificity than just simply a wife for uh, for Isaac. So what did he pray? Yeah, Marty, what did he pray? Oh, sorry, that he would, <clears throat> that the the lady would. The young woman would offer water to him. Yes, and not just to him, but who else? To the camels. So this was this was like it would have been a normal thing, right? Oh, if a thirsty guy comes to the well. Oh, I'm thirsty. Will you give me a drink? Yes, here's a drink. Okay, but it kind of over the top, right? 
to water camels because camels were sort of like they were beasts of burden, but like who who thought of that, right? It wasn't like a golden retriever where you would naturally go and want <laughs> to give water to that animal. Uh, nobody would have thought about uh, camels, but that that was the the specific criteria. Okay, so let's pick it up in verse 15. Before he had finished praying, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother, Nahor. The woman was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever slept with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. The servant hurried to meet her and said, Please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. This part starts with that phrase, before he had finished praying. Did you pick up on that? Okay. It was as if God already had in mind and had as part of his plan that this is how this was going to be and that she was going to be the one. So think about this from just from the perspective of was it a coincidence that Rebecca showed up that day at that time just right when uh, when the servant happened to be there and that he was thirsty. I mean, what if what if that morning she had called in sick? <laughs> you know, I've been doing this forever. I'm sick and tired of having to be the one to to get water for my family. Why can't my brothers do it? Why can't my my siblings do it? Why can't my parents do it? Right? So it's kind of interesting that where we might be tempted to think of this as a matter of coincidence, what we know and oftentimes talk about in our faith life is that this is what was a kairos moment. Now, we've talked about that different times. So what is kairos? What is that? There's chronos, two words for time in the Bible. There's chronos and there's kairos This is in the Greek, right? So what is, what's chronos, for example? What is that? Yeah, it's like your days and your months and, you know, you do your life and get up in the morning and you go get the water and you bring it home. I mean, that, that's what that is. Okay, that's chronos. But kairos is what? It's a specific moment that God has kind of either preordained or at least he's ready to go, all right, this is it. This is the moment. So think of it biblically. What are some examples of kairos that the Bible talks about? What are moments like that? What are some examples? Well, Paul talks about it in Romans. He says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. All right. So there was a very specific timeline that God had in mind when he brought Jesus into the world. Kind of all the everything was all put together in such a way that boom, there it was. And that then when it came time for him to suffer and die, that was not by accident that it was right around the Passover time and all of that. So see, God had a very specific thing in mind and that this was a Kairos moment. Here's a great thing about it. Nobody knew it was the Kairos moment until it was. Because as far as the servant was concerned, I mean, he was on a mission, right? But as far as Rebecca was concerned, it was just like another day. Here I am, another day. And that's how it works with us, is that we go about our day. We do our thing. You show up. 
or you sleep in or whatever it is you do, right? And then boom, God acts. That's the Kairos. And sometimes I think we're not so aware of the Kairos moment until like weeks or months or years later. And you look back and you go, oh my, oh my God, God's hand was right in that. And here I thought in that moment, it was just another day, right? So that's a really great comforting thing, I think, for us as we go through life. Uh, and you think about that sometimes we think that the, signif the significance of our lives is based on the fact that some momentous thing happened right then and I was aware of it. And I think so often that really actually God working in our lives, we might be totally oblivious to it. Until later, somebody comes up and says, that was the turning point for me is when you did this or when you said that. Have, have you ever had that experience? Yeah, and it's, it's one that we can be grateful for, but it's not really one that you can plan for. In fact, I think if we plan for it, we kind of mess it up, right? Because we sort of get in the way of the spontaneity of it, perhaps, but also the, the pure wonder of it, you know? The, the great moments are those moments when you go, really? Really? That happened when that happened? You know, that's, that's a great thing. Yeah, uh, Richard. The irony is the Pharisees kept asking for the Kairos moment to happen right now at this place. Yes. Yeah, do you hear what he's saying? Is that, that there was this urge in Jesus' ministry, there was this urge to sort of, for Jesus... To, uh, we want you to do this right now. That we want the kairos right now, okay? And so that tells you a little bit about what happens with our insecurities. When we're when we're feeling insecure, we have a tendency to want to control those moments and say, "Well, God should show up. This would be the perfect time for God to show up right now, right?" <laughs> yeah, Marla. I don't know if you remember, probably not, what you said to me at Aaron and Matt's wedding. Oh, for sure, I don't remember what I said at Aaron and Matt's wedding. <laughs> reception, you said to me, this was God, this was ordained by God, this was a God. I said that, said, probably, probably. Because I think I was a little nervous because it all happened. Yeah, fast. yeah. But there's a little bit of history, and this Bible story made, made me think of it. Yeah. Uh, my mother had died in September. Okay. And, you know, they had both gone through very sad times sure. prior to this. My mother had seen it and was so sad and wanted her to be so happy. She goes to heaven in September, and this happened in December, and it was a God thing. Mm -hmm. I know my mother got up there and said to God, and I just I've always felt, too, and the mm -hmm. fact that you said that to me at the reception, kind of like this Bible story, yeah. it was ordained, you know, it really was. Well, and now that we look at how things have gone, I would agree with that. So for once I came up with something <laughs> that actually came true. Yeah. Yeah. But but again, sometimes you don't know. I mean, you have a strong feeling that kind of is or was by God that that happened. And it doesn't take anything away from the fact that Matt chased her down and pursued her. <laughs> coming up with this sort of lame story about wanting to be in the bell choir. I mean, really? Come on. You know? But but again, it's somehow, and that's the other thing I think is that sometimes we, it's not that we're trying to mandate to God how it ought to be. 
And the beauty of it is that even if you did, God's going to do his own thing anyway, right? And his own thing is way better than anything that we would come up with and say, well, if you just do this, and if it would be this, and be this. I mean, think how much energy it takes to try to manipulate a situation into working it out the way you want it to, and then God comes in and messes it all up. I mean, it's just it's that's a little bit uh, a little bit aggravating, isn't it? But when you look back, you say, "Oh, if I had been in charge, I would have totally ruined it." And thank goodness God didn't listen to me in that moment. So that's a great story. That's a great story. Yeah, Peggy. Wouldn't the greatest be Jesus' second coming? Would you consider the Kairos moment? Yes, that will be the ultimate Kairos moment. Yes. <laughs> When Jesus comes again. When Jesus comes what again. You said, oh my God. That often when we prepare for those powerless moments, we mess it up. Yeah. So we need to prepare on Well, what I mean is, is that we do it in a way that we're trying to control the timing of it. You know, or, well, it would really be, Lord, if you're going to come again, it'd be really good if you do between two and four... <laughs> on a Monday, because Monday's a terrible day for me anyway, so that would be really awesome, you know? I mean, it, that's how stupid we get with, with somehow trying to, ma- to manipulate it or manage it. That's what I'm talking about, yeah. No, in a very general way, absolutely, we're preparing for the Lord's coming again, and that every day could be the day. So if every day could be the day, well then, you know, boy, I better get my act together in a hurry, because, again, it's just this idea that, uh, I want to be ready. I want to be in faith. I want to be prepared. All those kinds of things. Okay? So, yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah. I seem to be being quoted a lot here today. That's <laughs> kind of a scary thought here. Um, but the other part to this opening phrase is he was still praying. Notice that? Before he had finished praying. So it tells you that he really valued the idea of praying to God for a really important decision or an important opportunity that would present itself to him. And to some degree, I think it was even this idea that he's praying that God open my eyes to see it so that when it happens, I see it, that I'm not blind to it or that I don't talk myself out of it by thinking, oh, oh, it couldn't be that, right? And so while he, you know, even before he's praying, here comes this young woman. Okay, we'll see what happens. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too until they have had enough to drink. Don't you know that when she did that, he just about leaped off of his (laughs) bench that he was sitting on like he could barely contain himself. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough ran back to the well to draw more water and drew enough for all his camels. How many trips is she making? A bunch. Yeah, camels drink a lot, and there's more than one, and it's a trough. And I don't know how big that jar would have been, but it couldn't have been that big because she's had to carry it, right? Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. So what's happened is the very specific prayer that he had prayed, asking for the very, very narrow criteria of this uh, sign from God, boom, there it happens right in front of him. What jumps off the page there is his reaction for me. 
What's his reaction? When he sees this happen and he realizes that God has answered the prayer right then, he is not doing handstands and backflips when he sees it. What is his response? What does he do? He watches her closely, but in what posture or in what demeanor without saying a word? Wow. He quiets himself. And even if he was a verbal guy, he gets gets quiet. Okay. So my question for you is, how do you quiet yourself in order to hear God speak or to watch him act? How do you do that? How do you, how do you quiet yourself? And this is a some assuming, of course, that you do. And some of you have a greater challenge doing that than others, I know. Yes. How do you quiet yourself? How do you quiet yourself? Hard to do that. It's, it's really hard to do right now because there are so many noisy voices out there that are competing for attention in here. And sometimes it's really hard to tune that out. It's really hard to shut that out long enough to hear God speak or to uh, listen or to watch how he acts. So how, how do you, what have you find works for you? Yeah, Marvin. Well, so much going out in this time of year, to the, it really helps me just to read a daily devotional. So you, do you start your day with the devotion? Is that the idea? Okay. Like a portal of prayer, which is short and quick and, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. When it's just this little thing about, you know, four by six, I mean, that really works out well. So when you're doing that, how do you keep your mind on what you're doing or what you're reading um, given the fact that a lot of us have creative minds and they kind of spin off somewhere, how do you how, how do you manage that? How do I, I just how to stay focused? Just stay focused on the word. Okay. The word. Yeah. Just not try not to take a lot of action. Yeah. You know, just just sit there quietly for a few moments. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Kind of a little quiet time, and do you turn off your phone and turn off the radio and? If Sue comes in and wants to tell you about your honeydew list for the day, do you say, shh, be quiet, I'm with Jesus? I mean, what, I don't know how you do that. Yeah. I can't give him yeah. a honeydew list. Do I? You don't give him a honeydew list? Not You've given time. up on that. Not That's this time. that. Not this time of year. Oh, this time of year. Yeah, because tell tell everybody what, why this time of year is in, uh, significant for you. Fourth quarter, Daniel and Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you know this or not, but Marv does uh, consulting with people that are looking for. Uh, Medicare and uh, do you do Medicaid things like that too? Yes, Just yeah. Yes. So if you want, I'm sure you want a lot of business right now. So I'm going <laughs> to. So, so, Thank I will be eventually talking to you. I promise you on that one. Yeah, I'm getting close. So again, it's just this: How do you quiet yourself? I mean, do you see the significance of the importance of it? Yeah. Why Why is it important to quiet yourself if you're going to listen to God speak? Yeah, Richard. To, to hear. Yeah. And to discern his voice from everybody else's. That's the hardest thing right now because people are clamoring, uh, claiming they have the truth. And we even remember when we studied the book of Revelation and we went through that part where the deceiver 
part of what makes the deceiver effective is the fact that he takes truth or he takes uh, lies and then packages it as truth, okay? Um, and it's harder and harder to discern truth from what's not true. Um, I, I looked at a mag. I should see if I still have that somewhere. I probably stashed it somewhere. But uh, I saw in this magazine a... Uh, uh, the article was about the difficulty of telling what is a real thing versus what is a computer-generated thing. It was on, it was an online thing, and what they did was they had nine pictures of nine faces, people's faces, and then the challenge was to look at the face and see if you could tell what was the real person's face versus what were computer-generated or uh, artificial intelligencely created faces. I blew it. So then I went around to all our staff to see if I was the only one that was clueless, and everybody else on the staff is clueless too, so I felt totally good about that moment when I did that. <laughs> but when you looked at it, it how do you tell? How do you, how do you tell truth from not true uh, online? How, how do you do that? So you have to have some basis for what is truth that then you can do what? You can weigh uh, everything that you hear up against that. And that's why we're so, we're so grateful for, uh, for God's Word. That God's Word, as God's Word, uh, the Bible is God's Word, then that becomes the basis that we can, we can run everything else we hear through it. And if everything else we hear doesn't match up with it, then it's not, it's not worth us putting our faith in or, or leaning on in our lives. But boy, if you take that Word out of your life, and you say, well, I can determine what is true because I know I'm an intelligent person. I have lots of letters behind my name, and I can do that, all right? That you're going to be led astray eventually. Yeah, Carl. What, where, in Scripture somewhere, there's a, someone was in a cave, and there was thunder and lightning and everything, and God said, I'm not in the thunder, I'm not in the lightning. Yeah, remember that? I'm in yeah, the quiet. Yeah. Was it the quiet the breath? Mm-hmm. The quiet breath or, or yeah. wind or... Yeah, that it was sort of the like that. To be quiet and listen. Uh huh. Yeah, but to do that, there's this quieting of self. Okay, and that requires us to sort of step away or get away. Part of it is is just turn off the news, you know, or turn off the social media, or you know, whatever it is that you're that you're uh, currently uh, uh, addicted to. Okay. Yeah. For me. Get up, get up, phone down, and go for a walk. Oh, and I'm thinking about uh, St. Augustine. Uh-huh. Proof of God, the design and plan of the universe. Mm-hmm. Walking outside, mm-hmm. I think you see that. Yeah. And it lets you, it kind of lets you focus. Yeah, exactly. That's why my wife and I feed cats. <laughs> In addition, of course, to being part of the Secret Cat Society. <laughs> Which you all know about that, yeah. Because when you feed outdoor cats, you know, that really is a very uh, spiritual moment. And it's one that you can really uh, enjoy and witness the, uh, the, nat- the nature of God or God in nature. And, you know, they're not grateful. So you, it really is a, <laughs> it's an exercise in grace, isn't it? Because you're, you're giving of yourself freely and you're being really nice to them and you're being talking sweet to them and they go, hmm, 
See ya. Yeah. So it's not like it would be if it was a golden retriever, that'd be a whole different thing, right? Because you would go to them and you wouldn't even have to feed them and they would love you anyway. So it's just, you know, so different. But if any of you wants to be part of the Secret Cast Society, just let me know. Um, we're still, by the way, did I tell you that, remember when I told you, let's see, what was it, a number of months ago that we were fostering this kitten named Franklin? Well, he's a cat now, and we still have him. And so every morning we pray, we, it's part of our prayers, and part of our blessing, we do a cat blessing, and part of the blessing is, Lord, we know that you have prepared this special family for Franklin, and we're just taking care of him in a temporary way until he's ready and the family's ready. And so he looks at us and goes, you're my family. Yeah. So, so we don't yet know when the Kairos moment will be, but we are praying for that Kairos moment. Because, uh, what, who, what, what? It's already happened, you're the one. <laughs> no, no. No, 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 we, we're not prepared to go there yet. Yeah. I mean, I have this sort of sense of that. But Victoria, oh, she doesn't want to entertain that idea. So, so anyway, we pray. We do our praying. And, and I'm hoping it's like this. Before we had finished praying... <laughs> God would bring that phone call to us because, see, the, the Kronos timing of this was terrible. At, at the very moment when um, the adoptions were plentiful, then inflation hit. And what started to happen was, was that people, even at Operation Kindness, but some of the other sort of uh, dis distribution areas, People started, they stopped adopting and that some of them were giving the animals back because they couldn't afford the food. The food has just gone through absolutely the ceiling. What's interesting for us is, is that apparently there is a wider uh, secret cat society in Arlington that we did not know about. And there are underground sources of food and cat litter and all kinds of stuff that somehow we ended up with. So, you know, God, God provides. See? He provided manna to the children of Israel, and he's providing cat litter to the Adis. So it's just, you know, how great is that? You know, it's amazing. God, God is just amazing. So, well, anyway, I don't know what that has to do with quieting yourself, but, <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, let's, uh, let's keep moving on. Okay, so let's go to verse 22. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring weighing a becca and two gold bracelets weighing ten shekels. So this is heavy stuff. Then he asked, Whose daughter are you? Please tell me. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She answered him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son that Milcah bore to Nahor. And she added, We have plenty of straw and fodder as well as room for you to spend the night. So what do you make of the gold uh, nose ring and then also the gold bracelets? What do you make of that? Because he pulls that out and, and he actually puts that on her or gives it to her to adorn herself. I'm not here to rob you, number one, okay? But there seems to suggest, I looked in the commentaries and they didn't really say anything about it. But I'm guessing that it did signal some uh, good intent that he had, that there's probably going to be something that comes after this, and this might be a way 
to demonstrate that to her and for her to receive it. If she had refused the gifts, then it's likely that there would have been some sort of, you know, uh, the right of refusal or something like that. So anyway, she uh, she takes uh, takes that on. So when we look at so far in the story, okay, um, what do we note of her character? What of her character is being revealed in terms, and just in this encounter that uh, the servant is having with uh, with Rebecca, what are you, what are you noticing? What are you observing? She is a servant. She is a servant. She serves. Yeah, she is a very. She's humble. She's not, you know, trying to like prove anything. Okay, what else are you noticing? Very kind. Very kind. Yeah, and she's a hospitable kind of person. She she sees the need and then goes beyond the need and extends herself uh, into that as well. Okay, well, we'll kind of keep that in our mind as we uh, work through this. All right. So verse 26. Then the man bowed down and worshiped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. The young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Now, Rebecca had a brother named Laban, and he hurried out to the man at the spring. As soon as he had seen the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and had heard Rebecca tell what the man said to her, he went out to the man and found him standing by the camels near the spring. Come, you who are blessed by the Lord, he said. Why are you standing out here? I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. How majestic. All right, what does this tell you of his character, Laban's character? Wants to get rid of his sister. (laughs) Well, who who said he wanted to get rid of his sister? Who said that? Who said Marty? Somebody's come. We can finally unload her. Yeah. But what else? There's other little clue here as to his character. He tells me they had good parents. Yeah. That's from a good That's right. That's right. The other thing that it also suggests is that the father has died. Okay, because he's the older brother and he's sort of taking on a bit of a parental role. So the word that I looked up, I I saw was called fratri fratriarchy. Fratriarchy. I'm probably not saying that right, but it's the idea that the that in that culture, if the father died, then the brother would assume some authority in the family, and so that's why it says that Rebecca ran off to tell her mother's household. There's not really you know any mention there of a, of a dad, so probably he had died. He had died by then. Okay. What else do we find out about Laban? He sees a good deal when he sees it, right? And he takes advantage of that. He's an opportunist, right? Because what is he looking at? He sees the gold, and he sees the gold, and he's going, aha, two plus two is four. So I am going to go, I know it's amazing, I'm going to go, and I'm going to position myself as one who can take credit for the situation, right? And so he says, I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. I'll bet he had somebody else do it for him. Okay. So, verse 32. The man went to the house, and the camels were unloaded. Straw and fodder were brought for the camels, and water for him and his men to wash their feet. Then food was set before him. But he said, that's the servant, 
I will not eat until I have told you what I have to say. Then tell us, Laban said. He said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master abundantly, and he has become wealthy. He has given him sheep and cattle, silver and gold, male and female servants, camel and donkeys. Sort of like we read today in the service today, fields, cattle, and all my goods. My master's wife, Sarah, has borne him a son in her old age, and he has given him everything he owns. Now, what do you think's going on in Laban's head when this sort of litany of blessings is being presented to him? Cha-ching, cha-ching, that's right, okay. And my master made me swear an oath and said, you must not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I live, but go to my father's family and to my own clan and get a wife for my son. So uh, the servant is telling the story. That's what he's saying. And basically what he's saying is, is that he is under oath from his master Abraham, but the ultimate guide here is God, that really I'm a believer and that this is uh, important for us to do. Then I asked my master. So he's recalling this conversation that he had had with Abraham. Well, what if the woman will not come back with me? He replied, The Lord before whom I have walked faithfully will send his angel with you and make your journey a success so that you can get a wife for my son from my own clan and from my father's family. You will be released from my oath if when you go to my clan they refuse to give her to you, then you will be released from my oath. When I came to the spring today, I said, Lord, God of my master Abraham, if you will, please grant success to the journey on which I have come. See, I am standing beside this spring. If a young woman comes out to draw water and I say to her, please let me drink a little water from your jar. And if she says to me, drink, I'll draw water for your camels too. Let her be the one the Lord has chosen for my master's son. What is the servant doing? He's making it impossible for Laban and his family to refuse them. Right? I mean, is he a smart guy or what? Okay. Before I finished praying in my heart, he says, Rebecca came out with a jar on her shoulder. She went down to the spring and drew water, and I said to her, please give me a drink. She quickly lowered her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I'll water your camels too. So I drank, and she watered the camels also. The deal is sealed. Talk about closing the sale right there, huh? So I asked her, Whose daughter are you? She said, The daughter of Bethuel, son of Nahor, and Milka, whom Milka bore to him. Then I put the ring in her nose and the bracelets on her arms, and I bowed down and worshiped the Lord. I praised the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has led me on the right road to get the granddaughter of my master's brother for his son. Now, if you will show kindness and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me, so that I may know which way to turn. So, the servant is putting it all on the family, but he's saying that God is the one who has orchestrated this. God put this kairos, this a kairos moment, and 
what is Laban and the family going to do? Well, here's what they do. Laban and Bethel answered, this is from the Lord. We can say nothing to you one way or the other, right? What are they saying? <laughs> That's it. He's saying, we don't, what, how, what could we possibly say that would say no to this? This is obviously from God. Here is Rebecca. Take her and go and let her become the wife of your master's son as the Lord has directed. When Abraham's servant heard what they said, he bowed down to the ground before the Lord. Then the servant brought out gold and silver jewelry and articles of clothing and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave costly gifts to her brother and to her mother. Then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night there. So, the contract, if you will, has been consummated in the sense that the exchange of gifts, right? I mean, not necessarily, we wouldn't say maybe gifts, they, they were given as gifts, but there was also contractual arrangement being made that as I give you these things and you receive them, and then I give your family these things to compensate for your loss, well, then that means it's okay. And so why didn't they just leave and go back right then? Because there's more to the story. <laughs> there's always more to the story. All right, so let's pick it up in, in uh, verse the end of 54. When they got up the next morning, he said, Send me on my way to my master. But her brother and her mother replied, Let the young woman remain with us ten days or so. Then you may go. But he said to them, Do not detain me now that the Lord has granted success to my journey. Send me on my way so that I may go to my master. Then they said, let's call the young woman and ask her about it. So they called Rebecca and asked her, will you go with this man? I will go, she said. Now, what do you think was in the mind of the mother and the brother to say, okay, the deal has been made. We're, this is a sure thing, but we want her to stay for 10 days or so. What it, what, can anybody relate to that? I'm going to say goodbye. I'm going to say goodbye. Probably never see her again. Well, maybe. Maybe they didn't know if they would or not, although maybe family reunions they would or something like that. I mean, but maybe. Maybe. Yeah, Lawrence? Oh, whoa, now we have a businessman here. So Lawrence says maybe they wanted to sweeten the deal a little bit. Oh, I hadn't even thought about that. Takes a real base mind to think of that, <laughs> right? But maybe that was what that was. Maybe they they saw maybe the brother anyway saw this as a well. The opening negotiations have occurred, but now that we are on the same plane with each other, we'll sweeten it up because it's the guy's eager to go. You know, got to go, got to go. So pay you extra stuff. Hadn't even thought about that. Yeah. What? Father's locked. Where does it say that? First 50. Laban and Bethel Okay, and earlier in the. Oh, Bethel. Oh, yeah. I thought that Bethel was the mom's name. No, her name is. Oh, son of. You're right. You're totally right. So, it seems that. Only how, how come the brother was, was, you know, inserting himself in there? Yeah, keep going. Yeah, that's what I'm wanting. I mean, yeah. he's kind of a, 
speaking for the father. I stand corrected. I didn't even pick up on that. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know how old his sons can be, you know. <laughs> yeah. Before they asked I've heard. the girl, they said, let's ask her. Were they asking her if she wanted to stay 10 days or if she wanted to go at all? Yeah, it's kind of unclear, but when she says, I will go, I think she took it as stay or leave, not married Isaac or not. I think that was already in already there. And you got to remember that in those days, which is kind of rare that she they would have even asked her, because in those days, the family, particularly the patriarch, would have uh, said, go. And then, gosh, when they look at the payoff of all the stuff that goes with it, I mean, how, how would they have refused that? So it's pretty interesting that they would have even consulted with her on that. Peggy, you had your hand up. Well, I, I was wondering at first whether they were trying to get her to stay and have either not be able to marry or have the servant bring yeah Isaac to them to them right so that they didn't lose her they right I mean I'm guessing that there would have been some emotional side to that that you know here like yesterday she was carrying water for us. And now today, if she leaves, she's not going to be carrying water for us. So, like, who's going to be carrying the water for us? I mean, that's, that's kind of a commercial reason, but, but it could have also been just the emotional side of it. You know, maybe she was like their favorite daughter who told them stories and things, and now we'll miss you and that kind of thing. Well, and it seemed like the servant expressed them enough that he was... Said on his mission, yes, that he had found the answer. That's correct. That she would come or he mm-hmm. would come, yeah, and not that's right. I mean, we remember that part of that conversation that he had or negotiation he had that with Abraham. Like, well, what if I find the one and then I'm supposed to bring her back to you, but she doesn't even know you? And then what if she says, Well, I don't want to go with you, I want to stay here? What I mean, what then? And he said, well, then you'll be released from your oath. So the servant is taking the oath very seriously, right? And that was, that was a big deal. We had talked about that last week. So, Wasn't it the societal norm that daughters weren't as valuable as sons and as soon as you get rid of them, you did? <laughs> well, I don't know if they said it that way. That <laughs> it's soon, the sooner you could get rid of them, the better. Yeah. So uh, we had this... Uh, we have this this uh, guy that comes to our house once a month and sprays for bugs, okay? And so he came over to the house the other uh, the other day, and uh, he's you know he's done spraying and we're like paying him, and then he looks down and he sees Franklin. I know. I was thinking, <laughs> maybe we'll sweeten the deal for you, throwing a little cat litter too. How about that? See, that was the dowry. And so anyway. So he looks down at Franklin and he goes, oh, that's a really handsome looking cat. You ought to be able to get rid of him real easy. And I was offended by that. I thought, you know, I, I've sort of taken a liking, a liking to him. And I thought that's, that's kind of bad to see it that way. So that reminded me of what you just said, is that here we got this daughter and we're trying to get rid of her. So I don't, I don't, I don't. Oh, not now. Oh, yeah, I know. Definitely not now. But um, but it was back then. Okay. Yeah. And plus, 
because the sons were seen as the carriers of the legacy of the inheritance that would have been and then the the ability to provide and that kind of thing too so um you know the bible is very interesting about what it does with culture when the nature of the culture or the rules in the culture are demeaning to uh, uh, people racially or nationally or in terms of gender and sex and all that kind of thing. You know, the culture was pretty abusive and ran roughshod over somebody if they weren't the right class or they didn't have the right economic support, that kind of stuff. And the Bible is quite inclusive when it comes to the idea that all are valued, all are highly loved, all are worth something. And that was countercultural. To uh, to that in terms of Old Testament life as well as New Testament life. Yeah, Brian. Well, when the serpent threw out the name Abraham, yeah. clearly Abraham's name oh. well. Yes. Was not everybody. everybody knew him. Everybody knew about him. Remember, even the kings did. They said, "You are a mighty prince among us. We will not mess with you." I mean, this whole thing about the. The burial plot, you know, where Abraham was negotiating with uh, with the uh, Hittite in the uh, presence of the Hittites. I mean, he was seen as, you know, there's big stuff going on with him. Don't mess with him. So the reputation that Abraham had by now and then his son would have been his only child that would have extended uh, extended into that as well. So, yeah, great point. Yeah, good point. <laughs> Say that again. They were family. They would have known, but you know, sometimes you can know and not really like be that impressed. You know, I'm sure you have relatives that you're, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I know my voice trailed off as I was thinking about my own family, so that's, yeah. You know what strikes me is the analogy between. Isaac being sacrificed, and Rebecca is kind of sacrificed here. Oh, (laughs) yeah, that's right, that's right. Yeah, I've thought about that too with with respect to Isaac, because he was going to be sacrificed. That would have been very special to have been burnt on an altar. That would have been special. And then to be saved by an angel, that would really have been that moment when you look back on your life and you say, you know, I think God's at work in my life, you know, that, and you think about that moment. Um, but it would have communicated to him that his life was being preserved for a special purpose, right? And so somehow, you know, again, that God has those things in mind and he's doing the thing that he does. And very often it's outside of our awareness, right? Kind of gets to this whole thing of God's purpose in your life and, you know, are you living his will and stuff like that. And and so often we get worried, I think, unduly worried about that. We say, well, gosh, I, I don't know if what I'm doing in my life is what God wants me to do. I I. You know, I I used to live up north, and now I live down south, and I know that's the promised land, but I'm still not sure if that's where I'm supposed to be, you know, and all that kind of stuff, you know? And, and we're, we get worried about it. We think, oh, maybe I should lose sleep at night because maybe I'm not doing God's will. And here's the great thing about it. God's going to do His will, and He does it through us. And the thing for us is that we just trust Him. 
And you don't have to be overly worried or can't sleep at night because maybe I'm not doing the blueprint that he has for me. I've never believed in a blueprint idea. Now, some people do, and they find a lot of comfort in it, but there's also people that find a lot of angst in it. The, uh-oh, I better check with God before I get in the car and drive to work because maybe that's not exactly what he wants me to do today. Guess what he wants you to do today? What does he want you to do today? He wants you to love him with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and he wants you to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what he wants you to do. That's pretty good. And if I do that on the way here on George Bush and there's people cutting in in front of me and and sort of being like crummy drivers, and I'm going to try to do that. I'm going to not take the Lord's name in vain, and I will drive defensively. Okay. Yeah. Lack of faith is not really sacrifice. I mean, being killed and getting mad is not exactly the same thing. Right, right. Is there a point that you're wanting to make with that? Okay, yeah. Yeah, it's it's not, but you can kind of get some sense of that somehow sacrifice would have been part of that. And certainly when you get married, I mean, there's sacrifices that we make, right? For the, for the sake of the other person, we do that. So, yeah. Yeah, we won't say anything more about that. That's... Okay, and what you were just saying, sometimes when we look at what God's yeah, I mean, because the flexibility of God, even though he's like, he doesn't change, but there still is a, I mean, think about, think about it this way, and I go always go back to Romans 8, 28. For we know that in all things God works together for the good of those who love him. So I know in my life I'm continually messing that up. I'm continually going what I thought was his direction, but really kind of secretly was my direction. I know that. And so then what does God do? He goes, again, i got to fix it. But see, that's his spontaneity and his flexibility. and his He's going to take it and make it work for his good. That doesn't mean that it's always painless for me. Sometimes it's painful for me. And I'm thinking later, I'm going, oh, if only I had just thought about praying before I did that, you know, kind of idea. So, but God's going to do what God's do. And what God does, because he's acting out of a heart of mercy and compassion, he doesn't get tired of doing that, right? We do. We get tired of that. But he doesn't get tired of that. He just says, that guy loves me. And that guy's working as hard as he can to try to love other people like he loves himself. Okay, that's pretty good. And that's what you're going to do today, and that's what you're going to do tomorrow, right? Yeah, Carl. Too many, too many of, our, of us Christians take that for granted, thinking, well, God will take care of it. But God's wanting us to take, take care of it in his word and in his, yeah. in his principles. Yeah, and I think about that even right today. Voting started last week. Oh, you brought it up. Yeah, I mean, 
mean, our founding fathers mostly were Christian pastors. Mostly. Yeah. yeah. And uh, but anyway, to, you know, to keep what we've got, we, we've got to vote our principles. Yeah. You well, vote, not, that's to tell, how you vote. not to tell each other how to vote, but just go out and vote. Yeah. But don't just sit there and do nothing. It's like like pastor, the guy keeps praying for to win the lottery, and finally God says, "Well, buy a ticket." <laughs> is that a sign from God? You just said that buy a ticket. Oh, Carl, 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 has God told you the numbers? Uh, Carl, we'll talk after class. We'll talk after class. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's like you know, he says, well, he feeds the birds of the field. Well, what the birds are sitting on the limb, going like this. Uh, and he has his angels come and drop worms into their mouths. No, what do the birds have to do? They go, they go fly, and they get stuff. And that's right, that's right. So that's the idea of it. Yeah. In 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 terms of sanctification, that was how do I live my Christian life? That's a, there's a cooperation with me and the Holy Spirit. But in terms of justification, which is how I get to be saved, that's all God's doing, and that's the good news about that. Okay, well, we will stop here. Now, next week, Richard is taking a class. I have a family wedding. Yeah, I know. I never make any money in those things. So um, <laughs> so on Thursday, my niece from, this is my brother's youngest daughter, is getting married. I get to do it. Um, and uh, everybody's coming in from California. And so then on Thursday, we have a big, like, soiree. And then Friday, we're doing the wedding rehearsal and the dinner. And then Saturday, we're having the wedding itself, and it's all out uh, west of Fort Worth. Uh, my sister has a has a ranch out there, so we're doing it out there. And then I said, Pastor Colin, do you think it would be okay if I, like, took off on Sunday? Because I just know I won't be just, like, totally myself. And he had compassion for me, and he said, <laughs> he said fine, you have one more week of vacation you can take. So anyway... Uh, so Richard will be uh, handling the, the uh, lesson for you. And so be very nice to Richard because I am probably going to want him to do it again some other time. Okay? Yeah, Keith. Oh, that would have been a perfect opportunity to recall that, uh, that time when I had to step in for him. Yes. Well, I think I might mention that, Keith. Thank you. Thank you. You know, there is a certain leverage that I enjoy, and that would be one of those. So, all right, well, let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for our time together. Thank you for the way that your word speaks to us as it does today, as if it was written today. And Lord, here it was written so many centuries ago. But that tells us that your word does not change and you do not change. And in particular, the love that you have for us does not change. So help us, Lord, to cling to that. And to be reminded each day that there is not a thing that can go on in this world or even inside of us that can change the love you have for us as you have demonstrated in your son, Jesus. So help us to trust in that, Lord. The reason why we can love you with all our heart, soul, and mind is because you loved us first. And when we love you back, that is just an extension of what you've already done for each of us. And then as we love our neighbors as ourselves, we're just extending that same love that you have for us. We're extending that to each other. Lord, I know we fail at that. We've, we've flubbed that up. But thank goodness for your love and your forgiveness for us each day. So empower us with that as we uh, live our lives in, in, in these uh, troubled times. 
and as we uh, live as witnesses for the love you have for us. Watch over us, dear Lord, until we're together again, and we pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen.